Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for most types of work in the world, there's a certain amount of training required. There's usually some sort of post-secondary education required to even qualify for a position. And once you join the team, then there is also usually some additional training. This might simply be going over some things you already know, and it can also teach you some specific ways of doing things for that particular position. And training is also often not just a one-time thing, but there are refreshers as the years go by, or there is training on how to do things better. Well, what is true for the workplace is also true for the Christian life. There is training and teaching involved when God initially works in the heart and saves us, but also throughout the rest of our life. In fact, the entire epistle of Paul the Apostle to Titus is for that purpose, to train or teach Titus to train or teach fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to nurture sanctification, to nurture proper conduct among themselves and with others. The importance of proper Christian living is hinted at already in the first verse of chapter 1. It says there, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. The truth of God's word accords or agrees with godliness. When we learn God's will or word better, then we learn to live better too, as Christians should. We shouldn't be just hearers only, learners only, students only, but doers also. And to to promote this, Paul, he first goes on to emphasize the importance, uh, qualifications, and some tasks of elders in the church in chapter 1. But he also emphasizes the importance of teaching sound doctrine for the purpose of training in Christian living. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which... um, I just realized we haven't read. I'm, I apologize. <laughs> let's, um, so let's read that now at this moment from chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Titus chapter 2. It says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern 
of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. And so in the first part of this chapter then, he gives instructions uh, for older men, older women, young men, young women, and servants or workers. And then we come to uh, the verses that are especially our focus today that further make his point, the last part of the chapter, verses 11 through 14. And I'll just read those again to refresh us with them. Verse 11 through 14, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we shall live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So our theme with this is simply grace living, grace living. And in these verses, we see first the appearance of grace, second, the teaching for living, and third, the motivation in Christ. The appearance of grace, the teaching for living, and the motivation in Christ. First, then, we see the appearance of grace. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It says the grace of God that brings salvation. Salvation, deliverance from sin, from the guilt of sin, from the penalty of sin, the dominion of sin, the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life, Reconciliation with God, our Creator, a changed heart. This is what all mankind needs. Without it, we are doomed justly to eternal death. But by the grace of God, God has brought salvation into this world. The only way of salvation is by grace, the goodness of God. We could not deliver ourselves and make ourselves right with God by our obedience or by any sacrifice that we could make. 
Salvation is only possible by way of a gift from God. And the wonder of the gospel is that God, who we have sinned against, who has blessed us by his goodness in so many ways, and yet we rebelled against him, that he brings salvation. When we think of the grace of God bringing salvation, we can think of a few things. He has brought it in the sense of providing a way of salvation in Jesus Christ as promised. And he brought and brings it in the sense of revealing and offering that salvation by the proclamation of the gospel. And in applying that salvation to conversions by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of sinners, which is all by grace. The grace of God that brings salvation. And so the gospel, the the good news, must be shared with others, and all are called to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, including here, And God will see to it that not all, but there will continue to be sinners to the end of the world who do exactly that, who repent and believe and be saved by his praiseworthy grace. Now this grace of God, the verse says, has appeared. Has appeared. It has been revealed. It has shone forth. It has come into sight or view. And this was true already in the Old Testament. Already in Genesis 3, shortly after the fall, the grace of God appeared. It appeared when God walked towards Adam and Eve, when he talked with them, when he gave them the promise of a Savior for them to believe which we trust they did believe. And he covered them with skins of a killed animal as a sign of that salvation. The grace of God appeared elsewhere in the Old Testament as well in promising a Savior, in offering salvation, and even in applying it with gracious faith. There is the example of Abraham, who believed unto righteousness, There is the picture of God providing a lamb, not only for Abraham and Isaac, but for many of the Old Testament sacrifices, which all pointed to salvation in Christ. There are all the types and prophecies. There is the salvation of wicked King Manasseh. And there is the saving faith of many others, some who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. But still the grace of God that brings salvation was all under a shadow then, as it were. It was not fully revealed. And it was restricted mostly to the Jews only. But the grace of God that brings salvation appeared much more brightly in the first coming of Christ. Then what was pointed to and promised and prophesied came. 
then the one who would actually accomplish salvation by his obedience and sacrifice came. In him, we, we see the super amazing grace of God to us sinners, and that the Father subjected his beloved Son to such miseries, to suffer the divine wrath for the sins of his people all his life long, and especially at the end. He shed great drops of blood. He was nailed to the cross. He was forsaken of all his father's comfort so that it could be announced afterwards to the world, it is finished. The price has been paid. He suffered it all that whoever believes on him will not perish but have eternal life, John 3, 16. What marvelous grace of God that appeared in providing the way of salvation through the sacrifice of Christ. Without that, there would be no salvation for anyone before or after that. Those before believed in anticipation of that, and those after believed and believe in reflection on that. Christ alone is our hope. There can be no salvation offered or applied without salvation ever accomplished. And so with Christ, a bright, a super bright, shining light appeared. The light of God's grace for salvation. The Son of Righteousness appeared with healing in his wings. Malachi 4, verse 2. Those sitting in darkness saw a great light. The light of God's grace shone at his birth. It shone at his baptism, at his ministry, at his death, and at his victorious resurrection. The appearing grace of God shone brightly at the first coming of Christ to bring salvation. And this grace of God that brings salvation, this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, has appeared, has been revealed, and still is now, Paul says, to all men. The gospel, the good news of God's grace, of salvation in Jesus Christ, goes out through all the world now, in Canada too. It appears, it shows up in places, in families, in prisons, in hearts, where they never heard it before. And many have been saved by the grace of God. But this phrase, to all men, does not only refer to Jews plus Gentiles now. It can also emphasize all kinds of men, all the different groups of people, regardless of, of what age group you are in or what social status you have. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for all kinds of people, including here. And the question is, what have you done with it? What have you done with it? God offers salvation too, and he saves older as well as younger men, and older as well as younger women, and workers, and even bond servants or slaves. No one is too old or too young or too lowly 
to be saved, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, also here. And so no one has an excuse to not believe, to not repent and believe. And this mixture of people that we've been describing was also the makeup of the Christians in Crete, where Titus was ministering. This was the makeup of those people who, who Paul was exhorting Titus to teach and to train. Here it is evident that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men in calling and saving all sorts of sinners. Because here there were older men and women, younger men and women, bond servants, and, and surely others as well. And that is why Paul says, it, says what he said in this verse. He's building his case to Titus. In verses 1 through 10, he gives specific exhortations for what he should teach those different groups. And here he says you must teach those different groups how to live Christianly because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to people of those different groups. But he's also saying that grace does more than that. The grace of God does not only provide the way of salvation in Jesus Christ and offers salvation to all and applies it to his elect, but it also teaches, trains, or disciples the believers through means, through, including through people such as Titus. And what does it teach? Well, we won't go through all the specifics of, of verses 1 through 10, but just what Paul says in summary or conclusion in uh, verse 12 and following, which is that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see that now in our next point, uh, the teaching for living. Before we look at what is taught here, we need to look at who is taught these things. It says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that. Us that. Teaching us that. Who is the us? It is those who, only, who not only heard of God's grace in Christ, but who have repented and put their trust in him for salvation by grace. The us is Christians. It's believers. And the Holy Spirit, using means, teaches us now throughout the rest of our life concerning Christian living, preparing us more and more for glory. Now this word teaching doesn't only mean to, to educate, but also to train or mold, and can even include correction by chastening or discipline. We can say that the grace of God disciples us, and this is a long-term endeavor. Having a sinful heart, we, we can be slow learners and easy forgetters, can't we? But God has his way of humbling us to, to teach us, doesn't he? Well, what does God teach us then by his grace? Well, Paul first states the negative. 
The teaching includes that we should be denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Say no. Say no to these. Refuse them. Say no to ungodliness. To living in a way or ways that does not respect and honor God. That is without God. That is against God. Do not live in a way that does not have God and what he wants from us in our thoughts. Do not live in a way that is displeasing to him. Do not live in a way that is not in obedience to his commandments, to his will. Do not give God second place or last place in our decisions. Do not fall into the subtle trap of having no time or place for God, but time and place for everything or anything else, which are called here worldly lusts or passions. Lusts or passions are intense desires or cravings. Worldly, of course, means earthly or temporal. Do not open the door for intense desires for earthly things. For anything of this world that does not please God. This also means too much of a thing that is fine in itself. Do not make an idol of anything. Say no to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Of immorality, materialism, and boasting in ourselves. As, as one person put it, say no to any inordinate longing for pleasure, possessions, and power. Yes, say no to anything that is contrary to the law of God. The grace of God teaches us, trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. He weans us from these things more and more. And although there are ups and downs, there are faults, and we do not obey and, and love perfectly, yet his grace remains sufficient for us, and he keeps on patiently teaching us the value of not living wrongly, but living rightly instead. What has he been teaching you lately? What has he been teaching you lately regarding these things? He wants us to learn as Christians that we have no business sinning against him. That we have no business not loving him with our whole heart. And no business not loving our neighbor either. He wants us to learn that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And are called to live resurrected lives after our resurrected Savior. And he wants to hear from us. He wants us to cry out to him for strength for help in this living, in this denying. Moving on, the grace of God, our text says, has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This is the positive exhortation. If we would do these things, we wouldn't be doing those other things. Well, what does the grace of God teach us 
first our heads and then our hearts and our practice. Here a little and, and there a little. Well, we've seen what we should not strive to do, but what should we strive to do to the honor and glory and praise of our God of amazing grace? Well, it teaches us that we should live soberly. We should live soberly. When we see this word, we might rightly think of the opposite, of drunkenness. Instead of being intoxicated with sin and with carelessness, live soberly. That means we should live with self-control. It is acting and speaking carefully, conducting ourselves with sound Christian thinking and principles. It is restraining ourselves from sinful things and from overindulgence in other things. It is making proper use of things. It is also pausing and taking time in important or, or sensitive decisions. And it is doing everything with prayer and seeking to stay close to God. We should live soberly. And he says righteously or justly or uprightly. This means to live in line with moral standards, particularly with God's moral standards in his moral law. It is to live rightly in, in that respect and seek to not only do, not do the negatives, but to do the positives of each commandment. It is seeking to be faithful in love to God and love to our neighbor. And we could really go through all the Ten Commandments in great detail, but we don't have time for that, and I'll just mention some. It includes not taking God's name in vain, but seeking to honor him in all that we do. Keeping the Sabbath day set apart for God's worship and our spiritual refreshment, and to not misuse it. Do not steal, but care for the things of others. Do not lie, but be honest with others at all costs. Live righteously. Seek to live righteously. The third practice mentioned here is godly. Godly. And this means living with devotion to God. It is having proper respect to God, living with an eye to God, living with dependence on God, living for God, having God and what he wants in our thoughts. It is making God a priority and, and having time for him and, and for what he wants, including reading our Bibles and praying every single day, trying to walk closely with him and devotion to him. It also includes seeking to live soberly and righteously. And so we see here that these, these overlap because when we act godly, then we want to act soberly and righteously as well. And the grace of God teaches us that we should live these ways, it says in their text, in the present age, in the present world. This is our assignment in the here and now as his recruits, as his servants, as his students. These are not for another time. Don't ever think that. But they're for now, in the present. 
And we should see these also as our privilege even. Our privilege. Yes, our privilege. Since he has delivered us, remember, from the terrible dominion of sin, believers. That one day will deliver us completely from, it, from committing any sin. And be with Jesus, with soul and body forever. And that is what grace also teaches us to look forward to. It teaches us to do those things that we've seen. Well, also, it says in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking here means waiting for or looking forward to, anticipating the arrival of something. And what is that? It says here, it is the blessed hope. The blessed realization of the hope that we already possess. The hope that grace has given to us and that we are confident will occur. The blessing of completed salvation and eternal perfection and glory in the presence of Jesus, not only for our souls, which will happen when we die, if Jesus doesn't return before that, but also for our bodies. If we died first and our dead bodies will be miraculously put back together and raised back to life and brought to glory, being made glorious as well. Or if we are still living, then we will go, go soul and body straight to glory and being glorious. Either way, our hope is that we will be completely free from all the effects of sin, soul and body, and have completed salvation, eternal perfection, and joyous glory. We'll be like Jesus and with Jesus fully and forever. But as implied, this hope hinges on the return of Jesus. And so we not only look for the blessed hope, but also, Paul says, the glorious appearing, or the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace that brings salvation appeared, especially in the first coming of Jesus. But glory that completes salvation will appear at the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming again. He will appear again, who is here called our great God and Savior, our Emmanuel, God with us. And his appearance will be glorious and that he will come with great honor as king and as judge, with bright shining light on the clouds, with trumpets, with angels, with judgment, with resurrections from the dead to either hell or heaven. We are in a time of waiting, of looking for. And yes, there might be some differences of end time views among Christians, but all Christians anticipate our blessed hope with Christ's return. We shall be looking forward to these things. And perhaps this is 
Perhaps this is something that we should do more of. Grace teaches us this as well. Now this looking forward to all this should in itself be motivating for us to be denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But to add to that, extra motivation is given in the next verse for us to consider, to teach us, to help us to learn to do these things more or better. And we see this in our our third point, the motivation in Christ. We have been looking at ways that those saved by grace are to live and should want to live as grace teaches us. And it is true that we, we cannot do these things perfectly at any time. But it is also true that at some times, more than others, we go astray. We grow cold. We grow weak. We're tired. We become undisciplined. And we might be tempted to not deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We might lack the zeal to always live soberly, righteously, and godly. And we might lose sight of our blessed hope and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we will be with, not only in soul, but in body also. And so we are given great motivation in Christ here to teach us, to teach us again, or to teach us more, to deny, to live, to look. Expanding on on what he just said in verse 13, where he mentioned our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul adds in verse 14 these memorable words, who gave himself for us. The Father gave him for us. That's true. But the Son was willing to be given And so it can be said that he gave himself for us. He willingly took on a human body. He willingly walked, talked, and and showed compassion on this sinful earth. He willingly suffered all that he did, even with great pains. He gave his all for us, sweating even great drops of blood, being crucified on the cross, being forsaken of his Father, enduring his wrath, he gave himself. And he did all this. He gave himself up to all this for us. For us who were sinners, rebels, enemies. Him for us. He who is great God, became incarnate to be Savior for us. We see here in all this the great wonder of his sacrifice. And since he gave himself for us at the highest cost, should that not motivate us to give ourselves to him, 
to give our all to him, to love and serve him with all our heart, whatever the cost. We see next the purpose of his sacrifice, which in looking at is also motivating. He gave himself, it says, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. In giving himself for us, he, he purchased us. He paid the ransom price of redemption to deliver us from the reign of sin and Satan, to deliver us from the guilt, penalty, and dominion of sin. He gave himself for us so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, to wickedness, to every lawless deed, it says. And that is exactly what sin is. It is a lawless deed, or a deed against the law, the law of God. Yes, we still sin, sadly. But if he gave himself for us, to free us from our bondage to sin, then shouldn't we want to not sin at all with ungodliness and worldly lusts, to be free from that, to be diligent to deny sin and to live rightly as being free in him? He gave himself for us to redeem us, and it says to purify us for himself, for his joy, as his own special people, as his church. He purified us by clothing us with his righteousness and giving us a new and holy nature that loves God and has made us his, his own special people. We are his and he is ours in a saving way. And so he will always love us, he will always care for us, preserve us, bless us, comfort us, and is this not the great comfort for the Christian as well? Being so highly privileged then to, to be his own special saved people, being purified by his blood and spirit, by his grace and righteousness, and all this ultimately by his giving himself for us, should we not then be zealous or fervent for good works? Is this not motivation to persevere in the good works of living soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, in conclusion, some questions to ask are, are we zealously seeking to do these things? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly as well as looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus. To put it another way, does anything need to change in our lives? Any behaviors attitudes, or thinking? Is there anything that we need to start denying or denying again? Doing or doing again? 
Do we need to look forward to the glorious future more? God is willing to help us, to teach and train us by his appearing grace. Let's ask for help then. And let's use the means. Read our Bibles every single day. Pray every single day. Faithfully attend church every single Sunday. And let's be motivated by Christ who gave himself for us. But it also might be that you are here today and none of this interests you. And that you are not a believer, a true Christian. That you do not love God and his laws, but are still living in sin, pursuing lawless deeds of ungodliness and worldly lusts. Is that anyone here? Is that you? Then you must repent. By God's grace in Christ, you are still called to repent even today. Repent and believe for salvation on the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for sinners like you and me. And you will be saved and given the blessed hope of salvation by grace and to glory. Amen.